Hey, I'm Marin Wen, and you're listening to PodNed, a podcast for nurses in the emergency department. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode four of PodNed. Uh, I'm Lisa Lucas. Today I have with me Marin. Hey guys, how you going? And of course, as always, our beautiful Scott Gav. Hi there. Um, today's episode is going to be extra special. We're very excited about today's episode. We're calling it the United Nations episode because we've gathered all our colleagues from around the world and we're going to have a chat about what it's like to be an ED nurse in different areas of the world. Now, my perspective is very focused because I've been an ED nurse in Australia. And that's it. Um, other than visiting other places and visiting other hospitals in other countries, I actually haven't worked in any others. But you guys have. Yeah. So mm. we're going to talk a little bit, um, I suppose, just about some of the differences in training, how you start out, how you get to ED, the all-important, what the pay is like, mm. the conditions, the, I don't know, differences in scope. Um, I suppose just differences because I've worked in Ireland and here. Yeah, and Gav. I've worked in Scotland and Glasgow and North Lanarkshire and obviously Australia. Um, and there's huge differences, I feel, um, for an ED nurse. I think most of it, the sort of um, background training of when you started, when I started in Scotland, it was very much a kind of, you had someone and you learned on the job as opposed to the formal training that we seem to have here with educators in the department. Um, my department back home um, in the UK didn't have educators per se in ED. Um, we did have educators within the hospital and we did have some of our senior nurses who were interested in doing um, some teaching ad hoc, etc. Um, but certainly from an from a education point of view, I think it's far better over here um, than what I had back home. So how did you maintain competency on those skills that, that just... it's expected in in most EDs so for instance advanced life support how did you maintain that I would say the ALS is better in the UK because we did a full 3D course uh, 3D 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 course um, and I was actually an instructor with the UK Resuscitation Council and we had our nurses doctors consultants all of them grouped in that 3D for goodness sake 3D course Um, so we would teach people from sort of both specialities, I suppose, from nursing and a medical profession. And it was good to have them all in together. Um, so I did, found, did you do that every year though? So we, it was a three year um, mm. or four year competency. I think it was four. Yeah, it was so four we, years. We have, yeah. The ARC here but, is a two day course, uh-huh. but um, in this facility, we do a one day facility site specific mm-hmm. that's accredited by them. But when I first did yeah. my my ALS, mm-hmm. I went to the two-day ARC course, which yeah. is more intensive. Yeah. So ours was a three-day course for the ALS, which was four yearly. And then you would have your ILS, your immediate life support, and you did that every year. And so that was your like your, your refresher. So that was like a full day, yeah. But you did eight hours of it yes. every year. Yes. Yeah. The same in Ireland. Yeah. Um. Yes and no. So um, it was probably less structured than it is here in that there wasn't really set competencies that you had to do 
um, there was recommended courses, but we didn't particularly get uh, study leave approved. A lot of it was done in your own time That's right. um, and at your own cost. So obviously, number one, when you could fit it in your life and number two, when you could fit it in your dollars, um, you kind of did courses on your own. So from an ED point of view, it was the four day or three day, I think it was ALS for us mm -hmm. and the... Um, TNCC were probably the two biggest ones that people did and then there was other more local level courses that were ran that you could attend in your own time but that were run by the hospital you know like ECG courses and stuff like that um, but it certainly wasn't as clearly laid out as it is here um, and as a new nurse to ED nursing it was never really told to us what were the type of things that we should do mm. so it was kind of a bit of a baptism of fire you just turn up to work and off you went yeah there was no formal training like I remember my first time in resource um I just turned up one day and it was like yeah you're good to go you're you're okay you can go to resource and my handover was um yeah like a ventilated patient and the person who was handing over said to me have you looked after a vented patient before and I said no and they said, well, look, it's like this. Uh, there's your tube, there's your machine, air goes in, air goes out. If you've got any troubles, call anaesthetics. Do you and think, that was it. <laughs> do you think, though, because I'm remembering what it was like for me, because we've all been around the block for a while now, and my first introduction to ventilated patients was very similar but mm. back here. But obviously now our staff don't have that um, introduction to ventilated patients in fact it's quite a, a detailed program do you think that that is less about where we trained and more about the time that we trained in and do you think maybe that there's a difference now I mean potentially but I haven't worked there in seven or eight years mm. so I wouldn't be best placed to say it's if that's changed yeah. or not but I think the other thing that's different in Ireland is um the shortest nursing course you can do is a four-year university degree so that's different to mm. here and as part of that in your fourth year you do like a nine-month internship where two um, registered nurses or staff nurses or student nurses sorry are counted as one uh, fully qualified staff nurse and you get paid about 80% of a staff nurses wage so you're not fully qualified um, you have you know learning objectives and stuff that you have to do but it means that by the time you finish your four years you're work ready so a grad program doesn't exist so once but it you doesn't kind sound of, like it's needed uh no it's not needed in that people are more work ready however you know it, it, the level of support that staff have here with the way that you know NMPDs are structured and the the number of FTE that they have certainly is not equivalent in Ireland, um. So I think because of that, it is more unclear when you do join a unit. Once you're qualified, you're qualified. You turn up for work. On a Friday, you're still a student, and you know your registration comes through. And two weeks later, on the Monday, you turn up and you're that's it. Off you go. Mm. Um, and part of that's quite terrifying. So you kind of have to figure out what you don't know as you go mm. and then it's up to you to action that in your own time um, and I think some more structure 
probably some of that is due to the time we trained, but I don't know if that's changed a lot. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was back to the old Oxylog days. I'm not even sure if my old department still uses Oxylog, to be honest. Um, and I always remember when we had patients that came in who required BiPAP, us in ED weren't allowed to BiPAP, we had to call our ward to come down and do BiPAP on the patient. And I can remember one of the new senior charge nurses and myself got together to make it a competency for ED nurses to be able to deliver BiPAP and the respiratory physicians just wouldn't allow it to happen. Mm. Um, so that was very frustrating for us when we are looking at a patient who's gasping, who's CO2s through the roof and we can't deliver that service. We're having to rely on somebody coming up from the board to bring down their BiPAP um, you know, machine to, to BiPAP the patient. So there was lots of sort of robust conversations around there, but even when I left, it still hadn't happened. And I've left there what, almost five years ago now. Um, so that's pretty frustrating from that point of view. Did you have other resources though? So I came from a tertiary facility mm. and when we had intubated patients, anaesthetics basically came and it was yeah. Oxylog as yeah. well. And they would come and set up all your settings. They'd kind of wait with the patient for a while, check yeah. that they were settled and then they'd just come back regularly and review the patient. Mm. So I think, you know, it, it, they had obviously people who that was their bread and butter, mm. managing ventilation, doing that job. Um, but it allowed us to learn from people who really knew what they were doing. But at the same token, certainly me as a junior nurse over there didn't have a lot to do with managing ventilation, which mm -hmm. is quite a contrast to here, mm. where we're not in a tertiary facility. Even if we are, though, yeah, we still are required to manage the ventilators. Yeah, And, and the nursing changes. staff here yeah. are the ones required to do that, while yeah. the medical staff are there for support yeah. and certainly will check the settings. It is still the job of the ED nurse yeah. to, to manage that. Our intubated so. patients in, in an ED are, is definitely better over here, I would say, than in my department. Like that, we would get anaesthetics to come down and intubate. And there was only a couple of our, probably our newer consultants, some of them that had actually been and worked in Australia, would be ones that would be happy to tube. And then you've got other doctors, other consultants, you know, that would just call anaesthetics and the anaesthetics team would come down. It was good that we had that rapport with anaesthetics um, and you were always pleased to see them if you had a neonate come in. Um, and we had such a good relationship that they would teach us and um, I know myself and one of the anaesthetic consultants um, sort of got together and we prepared a, a course called the Anaesthetics Assistant. And we did that um, and, and taught our staff how to assist in intubations and things like that. Um, but, you know, from a consultant point of view, there was not many of our consultants would intubate the patient, whereas here we don't get anaesthetics down here. Mm. It's very, very rare. Not unless it's really, really yeah, tough. exactly. Mm. Um, so it's not something... Um, yeah, so here's much better from that point of view, I would think. I agree. I think, yeah... I, we probably have a similar experience yeah. in Ireland to that. What do you reckon for, like, you know, the bane of every ED nurse's life is overcrowding and yeah. access block and well, not I have being to able say, to do your job? Yeah. From my experience back home, we were very, very strict with our um, four-hour target. So our neat targets, um, I was quite shocked when I came here and there were people that had been in the ED for, like, a couple of days. Um, that certainly wouldn't have happened back home in my department. Um, we had um, a massive improvement project involving the whole hospital to improve our patient flow. And myself and some of our um, senior sort of exec team flew down to Warwick 
um, hospital because they had such good improvements on their neat targets and we kind of were asking them all how, how have you done that so we learned a lot from them and then we hired someone to come in um, and do the same yeah and it was yeah, basically wow. we did a lot of process planning and um, process mapping out and you know it was referred to as patients like in a sort of um, it was all taken from the sort of airline industry so it was like a conveyor belt and you know and it kind of didn't sit well with me because these were patients we were talking about um, however you know we did do a lot of improvement work and we had an amazing director who was previously a nurse in another life and she was absolutely brilliant at bed meetings to say such and such has been in the department for you know three and a half hours this is not ed's problem i want all your discharges out and she would push it for the whole mm. hospital so that it would be more of a pooling of patients from ed as opposed to us trying to push patients so out. when you came to australia that was pretty novel for you yeah, to have absolutely. patients waiting, which yeah, is like... totally shocked. Like, if we had a four-hour breach, wow. I would have to go up every day and say, I've had two breaches since midnight. I would have to explain why they've breached, um, you know, what what could have done to prevent it. And wow. certainly if we had a double breach, if someone was there for eight, eight hours, then, like, our government would be involved in that. You know, we would wow. be fined for that. It was pretty full-on. And that's, full like, on. stark contrast to my experience in Ireland. So for those of you that don't know your geography that well coming from this side of the mm -hmm. world um gav in scotland worked under the nhs mm -hmm. and in ireland in the republic it's a different health service called the hse um and ireland has chronic overcrowding in their hospitals in general and i think my worst handover in a morning was 52 patients waiting for admission wow, wow. um and at that point we had to move you know chairs out of the cafe lobby and there's just constantly trolleys and corridors and um I think at one point I remember working a night shift as an RN on the floor and my I was the only nurse in that corridor and I had 18 patients and then I came here and it was like a breath of fresh air and people were like you know panicking when we had two people waiting yeah. to come in and I was like what's all the fuss about this is you know we're all good mm -hmm. there's only two because we had a constant supply of you know double figure patients waiting to access a bed all the time and patients would wait up to 12 hours sometimes just to get in mm. um so coming here was like totally a positive experience in that way it was totally different look don't get me wrong there was some times when we had that as well i can remember there was 13 patients that were medical patients waiting in our department for beds but i think the accountability and um, what worked for us was the whole hospital was involved we did a rat pilot study where we involved our consultant our medical consultants who came down and um so we organized an ambulatory ambulatory care model we um, what used to happen is we would have a GP assessment area and anyone that came in with chest pain that we knew was going to go to the medics anyway, we did a pilot programme where we would just divert them straight to medics because that's the stream that they were going to go in mm. and our medical consultants came to work as part of our improvement project. It was huge. But prior to that, our, our ED consultants you know, wouldn't hesitate to contact one of the medical consultants at mm. home and say, you've got 13 medical patients in here, you need to come in and fix this to yeah. whatever consultant was on call. And that yeah. doesn't happen here. 
um, to my knowledge anyway. Um, it depends on the facility yeah. because I've worked in a number of facilities here mm -hmm. and certainly we deal with not only access block purely because also our ED is so much bigger than the rest of our hospital comparatively, mm -hmm. but also uh, ramping or whatever you want to call it was something that was foreign to me even coming from another facility in Queensland because where I was in North Queensland, um, yes, there was plenty of access block and it was constant, but they were able to put forward initiatives and, and whole of hospital projects where ramping was almost non-existent. Ramping, mm. if one person was ramped for more than five minutes, that was a whole of hospital approach yeah, as well. Exec came down, mm -hmm. they moved people out and the patient was moved off the trolley. But again, the facility, the back of hospital was comparative Had capacity. To, yeah, yeah. To, the, to the ED. Mm. They were big enough to mm -hmm. take that, that flow and you that's what makes me not understand across this area of, mm. of Queensland as to why some of these really, really big facilities, yes, they should have access block. I don't disagree with that. But why ramping mm. particularly is so – it's such a bad problem in a lot of places. I think but then, I think um, – sorry. No, I was I, just going to say that, that my perspective changed not coming here because it was very similar, but my perspective changed when I visited – hospitals in Nepal where it wasn't ramping and it wasn't double bunking and it wasn't access block it was not one person to a bed but three people to a bed and the sickest one got to lie down and the other two got to sit Sat on the there. end of wow. the bed and I remember walking in and saying why are all those people sitting on the bed and the nurse said well that one's a patient and that one's a patient and that one's a patient and the people that are on the floor around them are their family I thought, oh my god! So it everywhere it changed a whole perspective. Yeah. I came back from there and I thought, I'm never going to complain mm -hmm. about. Of course, I do because it was a number of years ago. But yeah, yeah. And I think Ireland was so hard. So for us, it wasn't facility specific. It was across the whole country, mm -hmm. um, and it's been there for a very, very long time. And the hospital did have a good approach to it. They mm -hmm. just were chronically overcrowded yeah. because there wasn't actually enough. Capacity, for capacity, them to yeah, which is what it. I think we struggle with. Mm. Yeah, it's just yeah. not the capacity. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. different conditions. Mm. Different conditions makes you work so fast. If we yeah. if we flick back to scope, because I'm really interested in this. When you said that ventilation was better here, but compared mm. to there, but what about other things? Because I know you guys came here and were shocked about some of the things that we can't do here. That you could. <laughs> My first yeah. week here. Um, I kind of felt like I'd landed on the moon a bit. I didn't really know. Like, it was very strange. Anyway, uh, I got in big trouble because I'd had an Ambicare patient. I was working in, like, a fast-track kind of area. A patient went for x-ray. The x-ray came back. I didn't think twice. Looked at the x-ray, saw they had a fracture and put on a back slab. <laughs> and then I got in so much trouble because they were like, oh, nurses don't do back slabs. And they cut it off. And then put on their own. That was really terrible. Yeah. It was a much worse cast. Yeah. I think that's a bit extreme. I, I, I mean, they could have said, oh, we don't do it, but, but that's a job, job on the back slab. Yeah. But they cut it off. I can't believe yeah. they did that. It was cut off and a new one that was not the same standard. <laughs> it was put back on. Suturin's yeah. another one. Um, Suturin. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a few things. I mean, even like our nurses would do arterial gases as well they would do arterial stabs um which was really good um, which for here we so for here we're going to move 
for uh-huh. some of these things. So yeah. We're going to do plastering. We're going to do arterial stabs, things mm-hmm. like that. We've done ultrasound and guided cannulas. Yeah. But these are a big, big uh, training program for mm-hmm. each. So everyone mm-hmm. has to do training. Everyone has to do a competency. Is it the same? When you do these extended scope things over there, or is it just expected that that's the nurse's role? Well, we I did. think it's mostly from an Irish point of yeah. view. It's kind of just expected. You got a quick, you know, mm-hmm. this is no, how we, you do it, and, and there was, um, you know, documentation to show you how to do it. Should you forget, um, but it was just kind of expected. And then I think we also not within set training programs, but we had a lot fewer medical officers in the department. So for a big tertiary trauma centre, we might have one reg and two SHOs for the whole place for a night shift. So if you got a multi-trauma, as a nurse, you got to do so much hands-on stuff because there just wasn't the medical backup. Um, and that was really exciting. And we didn't have, you know, particularly after I was big trauma teams or stuff like that, that came in and did everything. And obviously, because it was a long time ago, the pre-hospital care wasn't to the same level that it is now. Um, so we got to do quite a lot of hands-on stuff from a trauma point of view as a nurse, which was super cool. I remember mm. just thinking it was amazing, especially mm-hmm. as a junior, even just watching as a junior nurse, watching these nurses who'd worked in ED for years just do their thing. Like, they were so good. Mm. Um, I learned so much from those guys. Um, so I think even though it was unofficial... You yeah. still got a lot of hands-on stuff yeah. that you don't get here for that reason. Hmm. We didn't have as many doctors either. I mean, I think when I started in ED, we had three consultants. That was it. Um, for how big a department? Oh, like we would see, I think we see now, we would see around about maybe 240 or something like that. Um, you know, it was a very busy department out of the three hospitals. Our, our hospital was the busiest out of the, the three in the trust. Um, but... I think when I had left, I think they had it up about 12 consultants they have now. Um, and a lot of them are sort of really hands-on, like I say, and there's a couple of them that have worked over here and they'll, they're more than happy to intubate, etc. Um, but the training has improved, like, massively since, since well, not since I've been away, but you know, maybe a few years before I left. Um, there was a big focus, you know, we had a clinical, we had a nurse consultant um who was very proactive in getting all the ED skills um, up to date and, you know, like they introduced the advanced nurse um, practitioner, mm. um, which a couple which is of the girls is, have done. It sounds like from when I'm talking to you, it's very yeah. similar to a nurse practitioner, yeah. but not necessarily but not, a master's. Not just an ambicare, yeah. So, no, no, is it master's? Is it master's? Yeah, yeah, it's a master's. But, but they're not um, minor injury and illness. No, they will do, they are minor injuries. A lot of the, well, the girls that have done it had already previously done their EMP, their emergency nurse practitioners would be kind of minor injury things. But this is that st- Is that still a master's degree for an ENP? It's degree or master's. Okay. You know, depending on which one they've done. They can do it at level nine or level 12, whatever um, one they chose. Um, however, this advanced nurse practitioner that's came out there, you know, their scope is, um, I would say, probably a bit more than our nurse practitioners over here. So they can do um, chest drains and things yeah, like that, Yeah, they were they? looking at all that kind of thing um, just before I left um, and using ultrasounds and all that kind of things. I know ours do as well. Um, but they would work in acute area, not, not in I think yeah, a lot of fast track down, yeah, yeah. A lot of that's down to models of care too, yeah. isn't it? And how the service yeah. is structured and how you want to use your nurse practitioners. Which this, I find this was just here, when I left. And, and I think we've even talked recently to people in Victoria that the nurse practitioner model 
regardless of where you go here in Australia, is very similar. Mm. Yeah. They're all doing minor injury and all yeah. this fast Just track, as I was leaving, they brought in a new uni program in Ireland, and um, I'd actually love to find out more about it, but it was called a DNP, so it was a Doctorate of Nursing Practice. So it was, uh, you know, obviously it was PhD equivalent, mm. but it had a more practical kind of, I don't know, way about it. Mm. I, I don't actually know an awful lot about it, but that was brought yeah. in for nurses. So I know... Some of our nurse practitioners at home were looking at doing that, so they could you know receive a doctorate care. of nursing, but mm-hmm. it was more um, practical, and I would assume because of that they could increase their scope. Right. And the idea of that is because we didn't have the doctors that yeah, we have exactly here, right. That we had a shortage of registrars, etc. Yeah. Um, so we needed someone to fill that sort of middle grade rota, um, so that was why they kind of introduced it back home for us. Yeah. Um, what about the pay so, in the yeah, NHS? Oh, the pay, the pay is not good at all. I mean, I think for what the nurses do, like in my department, it was extremely busy. Um, the demographics of the area that we stayed in, patients were chronologically probably about twenty or thirty years. You would think over the age they actually are. Um, so we we seen really really sick people, and the nurses. Were very, although we didn't have the same educators and things like that, they were really, really skilled because they just had to be skilled and um, our doctors were very good. And, and so hardworking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They never stopped. And I don't feel that they get recognised enough. I mean, I've left a, a grade seven position in the UK. I've come to a grade seven position here now and I get paid more than double what I did in the UK wow. for less hours. <laughs> for less hours. Yeah, I probably get paid about four times what I yeah. my take home. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, it's a different grade because uh-huh. uh, I was like a nurse grade five equivalent in Ireland. Um, but as a grade seven here, it's probably about four times. Yeah, the pay. Wow. Yeah, and I know it's been in the press lately, and you know, like a, chatting to some of my friends back home, and you know, there's there's a lot of disgust around. Um, there's been pay rises given to other members of the public sector and um, not that anybody grudges police doctors they all know, deserve teachers it. all of that i mean they absolutely deserve it but nurses were omitted from that pay rise you know and it's a big stab in the back to these nurses particularly through this covid period where mm. they've worked extremely hard i mean some of my colleagues that i worked with in icu i know that one of them had like a really bad pressure area from her mask um, with being in the COVID um, ICU, um, looking after patients that were very sick, clearly got COVID, you know, being prone and just having that full PPE on the whole shift, you know, for a run of shifts. Um, and for them to just not be recognised as, you know, as... Um, as valuable. As being, yeah, valued. As to valued get, as the yeah, other services. Exactly. So were yeah. they given pay rises, the other services given pay rises because of COVID? Or were they, are they given, like we are given our incremental pay rise every year because our union fights yeah, for that? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Like they won't get that? No, they didn't get, they didn't get it at all you know and then they tried to say that our oh, nurses were you know they were given this agenda for change um type award over three years but but in actual fact that their pay is pretty poor can, can, you know for what they do Comparatively. Yeah, yeah exactly uh, I've, I've had um, friends and family go to work in the nhs mm. in england and they have decided not to become not to use their degree over there mm-hmm. and not to bother about going through getting a registration in the uk because you'd earn more behind the bar yeah you would and have more fun yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 
It's really hard. Like Ireland, you do get increments, but overall the pay is just poor. Not great. And you pay quite a high percentage of tax, or certainly you did when I was working there. Mm yeah, it's not it's not amazing yeah, for sure. For what they do, Compared for what they to do, here. they just you know I feel as though we've came here and we get all these perks. You know, you get these two payouts. You know, like throughout the year for your train for whatever you want to spend it on for your personal uh, your professional, professional development. Um, you know, and like one off periods. We didn't even get that we've had before. And I think the you know, thing is too that that is all deserved, isn't it? Yeah, here and yes, and, and so we should get those yeah. perks, and so we should mm-hmm. get this pay, yeah. and it should be standardised across the world. Exactly. This is a legitimate profession, mm-hmm. not a job. And that yeah. was probably yeah. my next question because mm-hmm. we've fought really hard in Australia to make this a profession. Mm-hmm. And it is considered that way. It is not simply a job anymore. Mm. It is a career choice. Is it the same in the UK and in Ireland? It is in Scotland, for sure. You know, we've um, they had the recognised degree programme came out. We phased out the ENs. I know we still have some ENs over here, but the ENs that were in my department back home, um, you know, they had to they had to go back and, and do their, their RNs. Um, so we actually don't have any ENs. It's completely phased out. Um, so yeah, I think it's recognised, certainly recognised as a professional, you know. I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a struggle in Ireland. I think some people definitely still see it as a vocation. Um, and you know, you should just be happy to go to work to perform your vocation for, and you're lucky you get paid, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of attitude. But then, you know, the degree programme came in when I started uni, I was actually the first year of the degree programme. So it's probably quite late. Mm -hmm uh being introduced but um i think now it is seen as a profession but i think getting our profession's voice heard at a you know strategic level for the country is uh, yeah. a different challenge and allowing nurses to be in positions that can make decisions uh about the health service and what it should look like and structuring things differently and trying to progress it and move it forward uh, is I, th- I think we're probably a little bit behind here I think it's quite well respected here in that way mm-hmm. and nurses are included as genuine decision makers in health particularly the three here okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we're very vocal I yeah suppose. but in health in general I think in Ireland that's a little bit of a struggle I think it's still very strongly medically led which in some cases is warranted but in other cases it would be nice to have a more diverse group of people making decisions um and I think we're ahead of the game in that here compared to Ireland mm-hmm. but I think there's a huge shift there's been a huge shift since when I qualified um in the department that I worked in. I worked in the same department for a long time before moving to ICU and then coming back to the same department I worked in before. Um, and, you know, when I first started, it was just that see one, do one, teach one kind of thing, you know, and, you know, that that was your More like hospital-based yeah. training, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously, you know, as time went on, we'd start to bring out all these competencies and then it brought out the Scottish patient um the SPSPs the same as our standards for care over here um so you know it became much more what's the word structured structured yeah for sure um definitely but yeah I think it's really hard as well I think it's really hard to advance nursing as a profession 
you know, in an Irish context, in a country where there's not a whole lot of money to do so, yeah. it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, I think it will, you know, it'll take a very long time to turn it around. A lot of time and a lot of investment. So one more question for you. When you walk the halls, the three of us are quite close mm-hmm. and we're all from different places, but within our tight group, there is quite a number of you from either the UK or Ireland in our direct mm. group and that generally if you walk around the department you will you could reach out and touch someone that's you know from yeah you know that part of the world is it the same in there over there is it the same in the uk is it the same in ireland for aussies because i know for us it mm. is the big thing now we've got a degree we can go and work anywhere in the world mm-hmm. let's explore let's go over so in my mind i imagine when you go over there there's all these aussie nurses running around no no being no there. no there's not i mean even, i think it's even very doctors. difficult to get your registration uh, i think it's a very long-winded process you'd mm-hmm. have to be pretty dedicated and i think for most people that process depending on how long they want to stay mm-hmm outweighs the benefit yeah so they just travel and like what you said work in a bar or whatever to tide them over I did work with one Australian lady in my old ED but she lived there permanently she was Mm -hmm. settled there but there's a lot of um, international nurses in Ireland they've done big recruitment drives because you know a number of years ago there was way too many vacancies and no nurses to fill them because a lot of Irish nurses were leaving Mm -hmm. uh, because of yeah yeah, because of the things we spoke about you know the pay and the conditions and how hard it is um so they did big international recruitment so there's a lot of um Filipino and Indian nurses so it's a really nice like uh, international or I don't know multicultural place to work Mm. um which is really I really liked that um, I like that about here. Yeah. Yeah. I feel mm. the same way about here. It's very multicultural. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I think in my department, like everyone, although we're talking about all the kind of negative things that are sort of to do with the NHS, and the NHS is an amazing thing. It's really, really good for people to access, but it just needs that investment from the government. And I think nurses who are working in that environment where they are working extremely hard, they're expected to meet these unrealistic targets with not the right resources. Um, I think it's very, very difficult, but it makes them very close to each other as well because everyone's got each other's back and it's just that they have that same ED family um, that we have here, do you know? So mm. everyone kind of looks out for each other, but they just need it just needs investment. It really needs... And I, yeah, I agree yeah. with that. While it was bloody hard work yeah. and the conditions weren't amazing... Yeah, I wouldn't change it for no, the world. Me neither. Me like neither. my training was amazing. My yeah. my degree was high standard mm-hmm. stuff. Where I worked, the team was great. Mm-hmm. Everyone had each other's back. Yeah. And I learned so much. Yeah. And I don't think I would have been, you know, as good a nurse mm-hmm. clinically. Yeah. Uh, had I not worked there and trained there, because you don't have a choice but to get with the program, mm. and you do it yourself, and yeah. you just, you know, you just do it. Um, and I wouldn't change that no, for the world. Either. And it also makes me appreciate what we have here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so even on the really busy days where we do have ramping or we do have whatever, it's still not 52 patients waiting for beds. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, before we didn't have, you know, the kind of nurse-patient ratio is way out of sync for the amount of patients that we see here and the amount of patients that we see there. Like here, we've got, you know, in acute areas, we've got one nurse to three patients where 
back in my day, we would have seven or eight nurses on the whole shift. There was no one allocated to recess. So if something came into recess, which it often did because it was very busy, yeah. minors would be just shut and left and then you would just run up to recess and you would be in recess. And I mean, I can remember working That's on a it. night shift and we only had five nurses on a night shift. And I, I can remember this story, like we had a patient in recess one who had fallen from a ladder and then the ladder was impaled inside him. You know, it was like right impaled. I was in recess too with a gentleman who was sort of peri-arrest with CO, uh, COPD. I was trying to get him on the BiPAP machine, um, which was actually the anaesthetic machine I had to use because we didn't have any BiPAP machine in the in the department. So I was using the anaesthetic um, machine to just deliver pressure support for him. Um, and then my recess three and recess four had two amitriptyline overdoses that both need intubated. And this was all at the one time. And we've only got five nurses on a shift so four of us were one-to-one on there, and the other one was down trying to organise the whole of the rest of the department. You know, and I can just, that way, I just remember looking up at one of my nurses, like, you know, like one of my fellow colleagues over in recess one, she's got the guy with the ladder sticking at his neck, um, and the two of us just looked at each other and was just like, you know, you didn't need to say a word, it was just like, what the hell, you know? But it just makes you so close, and yeah, I think that's So let's a put good it bond. into perspective for those that aren't from here because we do have international listeners because we're that we're that big now yeah (laughs) Uh, so you had saw in that department Mm. 240 a day yeah but one with five nurses yeah we see here yeah 300 350 a day yeah yeah round about there how many nurses did you have in 24 hours so we would have we would have at the worst, we would have six in the morning, seven in the afternoon shift, and five at night. Wow. That was it. So that's for 240 patients a day. Mm. We're anywhere between 300, 350 mm-hmm. on yeah. a bad day. And we have anywhere between 100 and 115 people in 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. Not people. Nurses. 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 <laughs> Nurses. Yeah. So that's huge. Now, they, they have managed to get some more nurses on board, and I believe now they have 10 on a shift, or possibly 11. Which is still nowhere near still what nowhere the department near. needs, no. um, for sure. So. Which speaks volumes for our working conditions, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah and I think and, we would have had think... similar numbers in Ireland, mm-hmm. maybe maybe 10. Yeah. I can't really yeah. remember, but it, it certainly wasn't a lot. Mm-hmm. And like here's us in a 24-hour roster with 100 people yeah. or 110. In saying that, I will say there are days where we have been the same you mm-hmm. look across and you think how are we making this happen yeah how how yeah. are we managing yeah. this many sick people even with that oh, yeah. many nurses yeah because of just people are getting sicker people are getting older mm-hmm. and it's just it's tough so i know how tough it is here when we have those kinds of situations mm-hmm. where you've got a trauma and you've got a peri-arrest and mm-hmm. you've got two knee tubes which is not uncommon for us mm-hmm. i can't imagine doing it when yeah. you've got no one to pull from, because at least we can pull from. Look, you get places. very good at prioritising. You do. Just saying. <laughs> and you can recognise a sick patient from the get-go. And, I think expectations think... as well, though, sorry, from patients are different. Yeah. And I think patients attending uh, in Ireland are quite prepared, for the most part, that they would have to wait if they go to an emergency department, mm-hmm. which is a slightly different expectation to, to hear. hear. So I think there's also different pressures in that way. And what yeah. we well, also that's what is exactly what I was going to say is that if you look at it from a patient's perspective, and that the healthcare system that we offer here in Australia 
is second to none. Yeah. Really. Absolutely. When you think about what you guys have, have just spoken about compared to here. I will say, though, the care that manages to be delivered in such an under-pressure health system in Ireland. Like yes. Under-pressure like you wouldn't believe. But the care that still gets delivered... Is amazing. Is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a credit to everybody that works in that service because they just turn up every day and do it again yeah. and do it again and do it again and keep their patients safe. And that really is down to individual dedication and teams that are dedicated to do what they want to do. I, I mean, in saying points. all of that too, you guys and everything you've spoken about, I've never met a nurse from Ireland or the UK that hasn't been an exceptionally hard worker but also an exceptional clinician. You just don't get them. That When they come here, they come with knowledge, they come with experience and they come to work hard. And I think ED nurses, we always think outside the box as well, but what, what we had to do is we had to be creative, we had to be innovative where... We, had, we knew there was too many patients that were coming to the department who didn't have an accident or an emergency, you know, and we did a lot of work around redirection. So, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for me to triage somebody and say, you know, what's your accident and emergency? And if they tell me something that's something that the GP could be seeing, then, you know, I'll t we would turn them away. You had autonomy you know, to do We that. had to turn, and I would say, I remember, like, clearly triaging a patient who'd came in with a sore knee that they'd had for, like, three weeks. Um, and I'd said, you know, have you been to your GP? Oh, I couldn't get an appointment. I says, okay. I says, which GP are you with? They told me, and I phoned up the GP there, and then I spoke to the receptionist, and I says, this is one of the nurses at um, ED, and I have a patient of yours here who's at the accident emergency without an accident or an emergency complaint. Can you give them an appointment? And she says, yeah, tell them to come down at 11 o'clock, and they got an appointment. So we did a lot of work about redirection. If there was something that we thought you know that, that that's clear that's clear cut you know but um obviously our junior nurses wouldn't do that you had to be you know obviously um a quite senior but you know we would run it past the consultant you know if we weren't sure and just say well i don't really think they need to be here we could get them to the gp what do you think and we also had the opportunity where we would have our um gp out of hours who would come at six o'clock and be based mm -hmm. they had two rooms in the hospital and they would take four patients an hour from us um, so if anything came into ED after six o'clock and um, just say, we'll transfer you over to out of hours um, they'll give you an appointment. You go back to the receptionist desk and then they would just put them onto their system and they would get seen that way as well. So we had lots of innovative things on the go to try and sort of re-divert people who, who didn't, didn't really need to be there, service. to be honest. Yeah. And, you know, and I found that a little bit frustrating when I came here. But the GP services is very different over here. You know, people can go to any GP, whereas, you know, back home you were registered with one GP practice and that was where you went and that was your GP that knew you. Um, whereas here, you know, people can just rock up at any GP, you know, appointment and register, you know. And so that was quite frustrating for me when people were coming in. Um, Technically, that would you'd think that that would make it easier for people to access a GP. Yeah. They don't have to yeah. go to one specific one. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because I remember I, I conducted a four-month study of patients who came to ED that um, with a complaint that wasn't, whether, whether it was an accident or an emergency. You know, and the findings from that study were just, that, that was enough that gave me the piece of work to be able to work on, um, 
you know, producing this um, sort of redirection. So we would redirect to the pharmacist, to out of hours, to the GP, whatever. Yeah. Some facilities here do. The one uh, that I worked in North Queensland, mm. they had an after-hours practice, yeah. and if we referred them to yeah. the after-hours yeah. practice, it was it was yeah. bulk billed. But if they yeah. went to the after-hours uh, practice, it was like eighty dollars for a consult. Yeah. So, yeah. We, which, in theory, made it great, but then it was it wasn't a massive mm. uh, it wasn't a massive city, so the community cottoned on yeah. to if I yeah. go and present an ED yeah. and they refer me, it'll be bulk billed. So it. It was a gift and a curse mm. all at the same, at the same time. time. Yeah, mm. but our GPs—you don't pay to go to your GPs mm. back home. Oh, you, you do know. in Ireland. No, you don't. It's expensive. No, you don't pay at all. So. So we've got Frances Kennedy with us today. Frances used to work with Marin and I here in Australia, and she has since um, done the big trick of trip across the ocean and has worked in a few different places and at the moment you're in the Solomon Islands um, yes. and we're gonna have a quick chat about what it's like over there which from the conversations we've had with you very recently is very different I can imagine so um, I guess the first question we have for you oh firstly thanks very much for agreeing to be interviewed for being, on the, being on the podcast the first um, question I guess uh, we have for you is, I mean, you know what the education and training is like over here in Australia and how much our nurses get. Could you give us a little rundown of just what type of education program they have in place for nurses uh, in the acute care setting over in the Solomons? Sure, so they have, uh you can do your nursing degree, so a bachelor's degree. That takes four years at the university. There's two or three universities here, I think. Uh, and then they, or they can do a diploma program for three years. So the courses haven't been updated for a very long time. Um, and they're still based on an English system that's been here for, been in place for ages. Um, the big thing I notice with, this, with the nurses that come on PRAC, they don't get any support whatsoever. So there's no preceptor model, there's no facilitator model. Um, they just get sent off to do all the work pretty much. Um, so that, I think that has a big impact on them when they graduate and they're allocated to where they work and they're allocated. They don't, they don't apply, they don't in a preference for where they want to work they just get sent to where there's a need um, and so they struggle a bit they may not have done PRAC in that area um, and they don't get much help when they do graduate mm. wow that's so different do you think it like makes them pretty tough and pretty resilient or do you think it takes them a couple of years to kind of find their feet and settle in um, I well, within the ED context, I find them quite keen to learn. Um, they're the first ones to turn up for education every week. Um, and they will quite happy for instruction or direction. Um, but they don't have the necessary skills. They don't, um, they don't know how to use a defibrillator. They don't know how to use the IV pumps. They, 
yeah, they struggle. They, and like I said to you guys before, they're put in triage in their first week mm. um, unsupervised and put in resus in their first week unsupervised. So it's kind of tough for them. Do they just have to, they just have to sink or swim almost or? Yeah, yeah, that's it. So they do a pretty good job on the whole. I find them quite keen and quite, um, they're really invested in doing the best they can. And they will come and ask questions, whereas the staff that have been here a bit longer probably are less likely to do that. Yeah, and how, yeah, like you, you said, the uni courses like haven't been reviewed in quite a long time. So, do you think compared to what you would do in Australia, it's like entirely different kind of content? Yes. Wow. Yes. Um, Three years? I, I haven't reviewed all the courses here, but when I was in Papua New Guinea, um, they have different grades of nurses and uh, uh, quite a fair bit of the content is religious based. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that sounds like Ireland about 40-50 years yeah. ago maybe. It was quite like, you know, run by the nuns and yeah. it's so yeah. that. The other thing they have problems too, I think, when they're studying is they'll be sent throughout the country to do their prac, but they don't get accommodation. And accommodation here is really problematic, really expensive and really problematic. So they, that's, I think that's quite difficult for them as well. And do, like, do they, have you got, you know, high numbers that want to do nursing? Is it still seen as a bit of a vocation or is it, um, you know, they're just people who do it because that's what they want to do? What, what, you know, what's its kind of position or standing in society? Um. I don't, I'm not really sure about that, Mirren. I know that the procedure here to go to uni is you apply for the government for a scholarship. Okay. Um, people don't pay to go to uni. They're not self-funded. So they're allocated scholarships and they might get a scholarship to a course they don't want to do. Wow, okay. But yeah, so I wonder, <clears throat> excuse me, I wonder if some of the nurses did it because it's a scholarship. Right. Yeah, yeah, so it's it's quite different. And I noticed they don't wear their uniforms to work. Oh. They say they get a little bit, um, oh, too much attention is the phrase they use. So I don't know if they're embarrassed about it or not. Do, oh, do um, they get, oh, you may not know the answer to this question, but do they get like asked medical questions or something? Or is it just the, so, social stigma of being a nurse? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't asked that question. Hmm. That's yeah. really interesting. It's so, it sounds so different. So Is they it, come in their first instance, not really prepared from their uni, and then they get there and don't actually get any support. Um, yeah, it's cool. Wow. And it's, is, oh. it, is it fair to say that it's not necessarily ED or acute care nursing is not necessarily considered a specialty or anything like that. It's just part of nursing. And this is where you've been put. Yeah, there's no postgraduate study available in any specialty. Yeah. Um, but they tend to stay in the same area as a rule. So a lot of our ED nurses here have been here a long time. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And, and the other thing I forgot to mention to you is when in their study, obstetrics plays a huge role in paediatrics. So every nurse that graduates here has to be quite skilled um, in delivering babies and postnatal Essentially become a, a nurse and midwife. Yes, both. We're expected to be anyway. Yeah. 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 And they don't really differentiate between nurse and midwife. It's kind of all lumped into one. Yeah. You're a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. But, they, but they have to because they get posted out to rural areas where there are no doctors. Thank so you. they have to be good at it. Which is so, good for me because you know I'm hopeless at it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that kind of leads into my next question about scope is how far is the scope for nurses at the Solomon, in the Solomon Islands? Is it while they're expected to deliver babies, are they expected to do other things? Yes, yeah, so there's no, there's no published scope of practice for nurses either in PNG or the Solomons. So, yeah, there's nothing that states what they can and can't do. Right. Wow. There are some things that are related... Um, Okay, for example, in Papua New Guinea, you have community health workers, you have registered nurses, and you have health extension officers, and they're all related to the level of training. So the health extension officers do five years with a year of prac. So they're, they're pretty good. They're excellent. Um, and the community health workers just do two years, but there's no differentiation between, no clear differentiation between scope of practice. Yeah. And it tends to rely on just where they're sent to work. Do they, so, sorry, go. We can prescribe. So we can prescribe um, antibiotics. Um, in Papua New Guinea, we could prescribe diabetes medication, antihypertensives. Um, there are some guidelines, so there's some treatment guidelines that can tell you what to prescribe. Yeah. But you can pretty much prescribe lots of things that's like that just seems crazy do you think that's because they don't have in a lot of locations maybe have the medical backup for that and it's just really they need to be able to do that because of where they are no that's exactly why yeah, yeah right so are they doing um procedures as well like are they suturing people are they plastering people all those kinds of things all of that. Yeah. All of that. Um, I've got a friend who works in a clinic um, a little way out of Port Moresby and she, they don't have power. Wow. So at night, if somebody comes in and they need suturing, she's got to hold the torch on a shoulder, you know, between a shoulder and an ear and suture with the other hands. Oh my God. Yeah, so they do, they do a lot. They do a huge amount. So for a group of people who don't get a great deal of educational support, they're doing a great deal more than what we are. Yes. Under, under very difficult conditions. They're very good at skills. Yeah. So they're much better than us at putting in cannulas. They're much better than us at suturing. Those sorts of specific skills they're good at. But it, maybe it's that sort of higher problem-solving yeah. um, 
skills that they haven't been exposed to yet. Yeah. Wow. And on that note, see, we've kind of touched on it, but obviously the working conditions are entirely different to here. Could you like tell us a little bit about, I don't know, even in PNG, what's a, what does your average clinic or, you know, emergency department equivalent, what does that look like? Okay, so you mean the, the physical surroundings? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. um, so it's small and it's old and lots of things are broken and lots of things don't work. And you kind of, at first I used to just go, oh my God, I've got, there's no water. But now you just go, oh, well, there's no water. Like, who needs to wash your hands? Um, <laughs> you just go with the flow. Um, Lots of things go missing. Lots of things get pinched. So oh. things get locked up a lot, which used to drive me mad because you'd say, why didn't this patient get their Lasix last night? Oh, the cupboard's locked. And you're like, oh, God. But yeah. you do understand the reasoning behind it because things just do go, go, do go missing. So doing your job, doing something simple that you guys would just go, okay, I'm going to go to Pixis and I'm going to get my medication and give it to my patient. It's not that easy. It takes a lot longer to do simple things. Yeah. Um, just saying so crazy. Yeah. We don't have a lot of medical equipment. Yeah. Um, and we're really busy. Obviously, we're really overcrowded. And sometimes I get a little bit stressed at the lack of like we don't even have mattresses sometimes so the patients just lie on the metal bed or the floor so those sorts of things make it difficult to work with and is the like is the community i mean obviously you know in australia if that was to happen there'd be absolute uproar is the expectation like you know is it different from the community they don't complain. They never complain. They don't expect anything more. They're grateful for what you do and you think you're thanking me and you've been asleep on the floor on a mat for three days. Yeah. So the, the people are the best part of the job. Wow. But Yeah, so there's some bad things, but there's lots of good things too. Um, like I said, the patients are really good. Um, and you do meet some really inspirational nurses that we've got a nurse here that's pretty much set up the oncology unit by herself um, wow. so yeah so you do see some really good things as well the other thing that i might mention for the nurses that you take for granted back at home is transport so people don't have cars and there's no public transport after 7 p.m so they have to rely, there's two hospital four-wheel drives that will take them home, but that's for the whole hospital. So often on a late shift, they might not get home till three or four in the morning. Yeah. Wow. wow. So you were saying... Yeah, and then, and then do they have to come back the next day? No, they don't roster. They won't. They roster day, late, night. Two days off, day, late, night to try and avoid those problems. Right. Yeah. But that's pretty harsh, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, just when we were chatting before we 
start of the interview that um, people turn up at different times, which is not necessarily their shift time. Is that part of the reason? Because they just physically can't get there. Um, well, the morning shift, you, you should be able to get here because there's public transport by that time. Okay. A lot of a lot of um, women here, well, women here, women at home, they have childcare issues as well. Yeah. Um, we don't have childcare centres, so you might actually have to physically take them to school yourself. Or, yeah. So there's those sorts of problems as well. Yeah. And then, and also, uh, some of it is just can't be bothered. But. Yeah. <laughs> Different. Island time. Island time. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Do you have any male nurses? I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, okay. I would say probably 50% of our staff are male. Oh, cool. wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and they're good. Did it take you a while to adapt when you went, when you got to, because you went to PNG first, didn't you? Um, P, PNG was amazing. I loved, I loved working there. Yeah. Um, they're, <clears throat> excuse me, they're quite different people to here. Um, they're quite mad, but quite funny, you know, so I enjoyed it and I enjoyed traveling around to the different clinics going around the country myself. So I really liked that. Um, and I found them a little bit more engaged as in wanting to improve. Yeah. Than here, but so it was a bit of a shock when I came here. Just, oh, it's hard to say. It, 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 yeah, I, I did find it difficult. I found it difficult to adjust to the, the things that you could fix easily that people don't want to fix. Yeah. And now and you can't just go charging in and say, you need to do this, you need to do that. So you just kind of pick your battles and take it step by step. Do you I'm think, finally learning. Do you, <laughs> do you think that if you came back to Australia now to work, you would find it difficult to be here with, I guess, our perception that that we that this is this is the way things are, the way that for some for a lot of people who have never worked out anywhere other than Australia. Do you think that you'd find that difficult? Um, I think I've really struggled to work with Australian patients again. Yeah, they're um you realise how, how lucky we are, how entitled we are sometimes, and, and you don't get that here. People are, like I said to you before, I have, I've, I've never seen a case of aggression yeah. in my four years here in PNG. Um, you barely get any mental health. You don't get people getting angry at you because they've waited three hours. So, yeah. yeah, so I think I, I really, I actually enjoy working here. I don't, I can't imagine being able to come back. Yeah. Yeah. But I find, that, paper, I find yeah. that amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I said the same to Lisa about Ireland because it's, you know, chronically overcrowded and people wait a very long time all the time that the community expectation is that they will wait for a certain amount of time. They know that that's what's gonna happen and that doesn't really exist here. 
um, people, are, you know, arrived at the emergency department and um, I suppose rightly so, because the service could support it, but expect to be seen relatively quickly and have a very smooth journey. And obviously that doesn't always happen. Um, but I find that a big difference here. Quite a lot of them go home at night too. They come and get triaged and then they toddle off home and have their dinner and have a snooze and then come back in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> that could work quite well, I think, in some yeah. situations. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. That's so good. What else did we talk about between Australia and the UK? Well, I, I find... What, what do you consider the pay to be like there? Is it considered a well-paid profession or is it, I guess, in the lowest, yeah, the lower pay bracket? It's, um, it's well-paid. So um, by, by local standards, I think minimum wage here is about $8 an hour. So that's about $1.50 Australian an hour. So, but the nurses are well paid in comparison to a lot of other people. Yeah. Plus here there's a lot of government assistance, which isn't always fairly handed out either, but if they can get rental, so they apply through the government for rental assistance. And rents are horrendous here. Um, and if they can get that rental assistance, that makes a big difference. That can be a few thousand a month to them. Yeah. Yeah, so it is a well, well regarded role position and you were saying to us earlier um just some of the differences you know that things that we take for granted as nurses here that if you know you get a critically unwell patient in resource that you have everything that you need to care for that patient so you have staff that have the skill you have the equipment to back it up and the medications to back it up and those patients get you know every chance to survive whatever illness they have. And that's quite different for you in a resource situation. We haven't got a lot of tools, but I think we're really, with what we have, we're really good at it because we do it all the time. You don't know I've anything. Learned. Yeah, you just, it's just off you go. Grab the defib, off you go. And yeah. we've done two or three at once. So it's just, uh, yeah, they're good at it with those sorts of things. But no, we don't have all the tools, but you do what you can. And the patients, like I said, are tough. You can't kill them with a stick. They, they just amaze me. We had a guy last week who came in who'd been stabbed and he came from the weather coast, which is the other side of Guadalcanal. So he traveled 24 hours in the back of a truck to get here. And they put a chest strain in and got out two and a half liters of blood. And he'd had that for 24 hours and he was fine. Have you lost me? Are you there? Can you hear us? Now I can. Yeah, Mirren's um, computer timed out. <laughs> Technically, yeah, I told you Lisa's our techie person. <laughs> I just had a little panic attack. Yeah. <laughs> I can see your faces. It was like, wow. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you, 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 got, you were just saying that you're pretty good with, you know, making, I suppose, the best use of the resources that you do have. Um, 
you know, probably people don't really know any different. So that you just get on with it. No, but there'd be lots of simple things we could have. I would love to have intranasal fentanyl. Yeah. And and just really simple bits of equipment that we throw dressings. Like we don't have dressings, we use cotton wool or gauze and betadine. Do you get um, do you get much um donated, I guess? Um yeah, you, you do get a bit, but donations are a problem because people tend to donate things um that we'll run out of so they gave us pumps and and iv lines but those iv lines only fitted those pumps so when we ran out of the iv lines we couldn't use the pumps yeah yeah uh, simple things like that people give you but they don't always fit yeah and actually world health have done a study that showed 80 percent of donations are never used Right. Wow. Yeah. I'm happy for those reasons that you just yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we don't get that much donated, but sometimes it's, we just had a big box of sheets. So that was very exciting to have sheets. For oh, your, for your beds with no mattresses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if you put a sheet on the bare bed, it looks prettier. Yeah. I'm sure it feels prettier too for the patient. I know I would feel better. Yes, exactly <laughs> right. Oh, such a different world. Like, um, it's good I, though. Yeah, I have seen it in very, very small amounts, but to ha um, to to actually function in that way, I think, yeah, I think it would be very humbling, and I I tend to agree with you. I guess I would being there and, and being in that community and then coming back here, I, thought, I think would be difficult. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's mind blowing. I don't think I've ever seen anywhere like that. Just hearing you talk about it is fascinating. I can't, I can't even imagine. We're we, so spoiled. We can't wait till COVID's over so we can come and visit. Yes. Yeah. We get medical students and nursing students come up and it's, Pretty hysterical. Their initial reactions always makes me laugh. But they're like, "What? The water's not working." I'm like, "Yeah, man, fight some alcohol." Sure. <laughs> we don't always have water. I will sure. When I went yeah. to uh, to visit one of the hospitals in Nepal, they had I, I went and did something, took my gloves off, and went to wash my hands and asked where the sink was. And they pointed, and there was a sink that was full of rubbish and no tap faucets and a hand hygiene. Oh, of it. <laughs> like, oh no. Oh, that's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't have a shower, a patient shower, oh. which I, yeah. And they stay for days and days. So I find that a bit tough, but anyway. Yeah. That would be tough. Yeah. It's tough for them, especially, and you were saying their families are already involved and you know, they stay and help look after them. So I would imagine they would also benefit from having access to a shower. Yeah. Mm. One day. One day. Yeah, well, we, we will come and visit you when we can eventually mm. get there. If you're still there, unless you move on somewhere else, adventurous. Oh, I think I'll still be here. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Francis. It was great having a look into your new world.
Thank you. No, it's good. I'm enjoying it. Family puts into perspective and gives and makes us a little bit more humble about what we consider difficult conditions. Yeah. And what we consider our problems to be are clearly yeah. um, absolutely first world problems yes. compared to what you're dealing with. Different context. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. But it's really yeah. interesting. So yeah, thank you for talking to us and um, we will be in touch soon. I'll look forward to picking you up at the airport. So there you go. That is uh, Ireland, the UK, Solomon Islands, bit of PNG, yeah, a little bit of Nepal here and there, yeah, Australia, Australia, yeah. Do you know what was really interesting? What I've just thought about is that all of the health services, despite all the differences in every country, they're all free. Yeah, they're all free. And we had intended to get a, an American opinion on our podcast, but mm-hmm. our uh, timing didn't quite align. But it would have been interesting to see the difference between you know a primarily private health sector Mm. versus all the ones we've talked about yes they all have challenges you know advantages disadvantages but they're all free funny for patients because i was listening to uh, um another podcast actually that wasn't it wasn't health related but they were discussing um somebody that had munchausen's proxy they're talking about it you know a, a case over in america and how the healthcare system in America may have contributed to it. The psychologist was sort of breaking down the condition and how in America, if you have the right kind of health insurance, you don't have to see a GP in order to get a specialist referral. You can just go, you can just decide that you're going to go to that specialist yourself, which I thought was really interesting because for us, we can't do that. No. We have to get referrals. Yeah. And so... When, and I've noticed even from our healthcare system is if you're going to too many specialists, there's not that continuity of care and there's not that holistic approach to the person. Um, no, it's all kind of done in silence. Yeah, you see a cardiologist yeah. for your heart and, you see, and, and if yeah. you have anything that may be affecting two systems, it can sometimes be missed because they're focused. It's almost like the blinkers are on. Yeah. So I wonder how much that affects the ED system in America. be interesting. Yeah, I mean, we all hear the stories where they turn people away if their insurance doesn't check mm. out, but I wonder how true that is. Mm. But maybe we can do it in a future Maybe, yeah. Episode. It sounds like a good topic to cover. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. It was good. Yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, what are we next week? Ne- oh, sorry, next month. Next month we're going to talk about wellness. Yeah, I'm excited for this mm. one. We're going to have some awesome I think a, a, people a, on. I think a perfect time to in the in the way the world is and the way that some of our fellow ED colleagues are coping at the moment with all the craziness in the world. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I think um, I'm excited actually. We're going to mm. interview some really cool people and maybe talk about some stuff that um, people can do in their own departments yeah. as well. Like easy, cheap, free things. Yeah, because we've had some wins, haven't Mm. we? Yeah. We have. Cool. All right. Well, we'll see you all next month. See ya.